Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together. We ask for your spirit to guide and lead us as we look at your, your word. Teach us what you would have us to teach, hear, and learn, and that you would guide us. Lord, we lift up. And Lord, we do ask that you just give us some coolness and let the breezes come through this building in a nice way. And we lift up the Hilliard family as they're having to go through this struggle and the memorial is coming up. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy 29, starting at verse 13. That he, may be that he may establish you today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto you a God, as he has said unto you, and as he has sworn unto your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that stands here with us this day before the Lord your God, and also with him that is not here with us to this day. For you know how we have dwelt in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the nations which we passed by, and you have seen their abominations and their idols, wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among you. Lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away this day from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a, a root that bears gall and wormwood. And it shall come to pass when he hears the words of this curse that he, that he, he bless himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace though I walk in the imagination of my own heart to add drunkenness to thirst, the Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in the, this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. So we're going to stop there because there's quite a bit to look at. So we've been looking here at these blessings and cursings that have been coming, uh, and God is talking to the people through Moses as they're getting ready to cross into the promised land. Remember, the book of Deuteronomy is basically Moses' farewell message to the people. They've been, he's been leading them for 40 years, wandering in the wilderness. He's gotten mad at them. He's, done, you know, he's pleaded with them, for them before God. But now he's not going in the promised land. The reason he's not going in the promised land is because of his anger problem. He got angry with the people and smote the rock when he was supposed to just speak to the rock. God gave them water in spite of Moses' failure, but told Moses that you're not going to the promised land. And Moses never did repent from that, act, that activity that he had. Matter of fact, you read all through the rest of Deuteronomy that he keeps telling them that it's your fault that I'm not going into the <laughs> promised land. So he never repents of his anger because they made him angry. It's their fault. And you know, it really goes to show us how oftentimes when we are living in sin, we won't come back and confess that we are the sinner. We want to blame somebody else. And that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. <laughs> Adam goes, uh, by the way, God, he points to God and Eve. It's your guys' fault. <laughs> You know, it's this woman that you gave me, God. And then Eve blames the serpent, you know, and it's, it's been the process for, for all of our time. And, you know, we do not ever get victory in our sin until we are willing to confess our sins and admit to God that I am a sinner in this area. Not that it's somebody else's fault, not that I couldn't help myself, but God, I am a sinner. I repent. That is the first step to victory, and it must be the first step to victory. If you're an alcoholic and you want to blame everybody else for your alcoholism or you're, you're sick, you'll never get beyond the, the, the problem. If you are into drug addiction, you will never get beyond it until you admit, I've got a problem. If you're an angry person or a glutton or whatever your sin might be, until you're willing to say, I have a problem, I'm a sinner, you won't get past it. I come at Adam has an element of responsibility for actions of evil. He has great responsibility for yeah, what he did awesome. because he was the, he the federal head of the human race. Right, but that doesn't mean somebody's going to do what you say. Just because you're over them, <coughs> and she still, still had, she had free will too. She had free will. She decided to sin. God went to Adam first because he was the head of the human race, head of the family, head of the human race. He was responsible. Uh, I've said this before. I personally believe that if Adam had not sinned, God would have allowed him to be able to redeem his wife and bring her into, bring, well, I don't know about die or whatever, whatever God would have said, he would have been the one that would be able to bring her back. Uh, now, that's, there's no biblical proof for that, but he was the federal head of the human race, 
And I believe, my personal belief is if he didn't sin, which God knew he was going to sin, you know, so that's all a mute point, which is why it's not in the Bible, that he, as the head of that family, would have been able to wash her and bring her into forgiveness and bring her back. But he was the head. That's why he was responsible. He listened to Eve when he should not have listened to Eve into this sin and participated. He didn't get in trouble because she ate the fruit. She, he got in trouble because he ate what she presented to him. And when you read it carefully in chapter 3, Adam was there with Eve and not defending her against this attack from the, from the serpent. So as he failed all the way around as the head of the human race, the head of, the, head of this family, he should have said, uh, Satan, get out of here. You know, you're, you're, you're going against God. And he did not. And once Eve had fallen, I'm sure his love drove him to it. You know, he did not want to be separated from her. So his first response was, I'm just going to be like her. I will take this punishment and die with her because I don't want to be separated from her for the rest of my life. Whereas if he had taken a stand, it would have been a, probably a whole different environment. Um, <laughs> so, and then Christ came and did the same thing in reverse and righteousness. And then Christ, Christ completed everything at the, in the, at the end. So here it says in verse that he may establish you this day for a people unto himself. God's purpose with his people is to establish us. Make us stand. And we've got to keep this in mind. In Corinthians, we're told, There hath no temptation overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape. All through the scriptures, he wants to establish us. He wants to make us stand. He gives us the strength to stand. How do we stand? We turn everything over to him. The problem with us when we look at our, our trials and we go, I just can't take anymore. We're absolutely right. In our strength, we cannot take anymore because the way of escape is Jesus Christ who takes the burden and allows us to go forward. But if I want to sit there and say, okay, just pile it on me, I'm going to, cr- I'm going to get crushed. Because Jesus is the only way out of the temptation. He's the only way out of the trials. And all of the trials are designed to bring us to that point of, am I going to try to do it in my flesh and fail? Or am I going to turn to Christ and say, crucify my flesh and come out and work your way out of me? He wants to establish us. It's a work of grace. It was going to be a work of grace here because the people of Israel did not deserve being established by, by God as his people. They murmured and complained and worshipped idols and worshipped idols and worshipped idols and murmured and complained and griped and, and, and did all these things you know, over and over again. And God said, I'm still going to establish you. Why? Because of my grace. My grace, my namesake. We were reading in Ezekiel last night. God kept them for his name's sake. He rescued them for Egypt when they didn't deserve to be rescued and he, and he wanted to destroy them. But he said, for my name's sake, I'm going to deliver you because I said I would. When they went into outside of Sinai and worshipped the golden calf, God was ready to destroy them. But he said, for my name's sake, I won't destroy you. That was Moses' plea with God when God said, I'm going to destroy him. And Moses goes, no, you can't because you'll, your testimony, God, will be ruined if you destroy your people. The, the nations will say that you had the strength to take them out, but not the strength to deliver them. And God wants to establish us, his people. Not in our own strength, not in anything that we can do, but in his strength, which means we, our flesh is crucified and we allow him to be ruler in our life. And it's very important that we allow this rulership of his to be in our life. Jesus is Lord. Now, we don't really think about that. We use the word Lord all the time, but we really don't think about what Lord means, especially as Americans. Because we're not used to having somebody who is Lord. Now, we don't have a king and a master who, who is the one that can tell you what to do and you are to jump in, in without even thinking about it. Most countries don't anymore, but this, when, when this title was given to him, the Lord had the right to tell you what to do. God is sovereign, the sovereign king of the universe, and he has the right to do and say and act with us the way he wants. And it doesn't mean that we're going to like everything that he does for, with us. He may say, I want you to suffer so this person can, be, can see you make it with my strength, just as he did Job. Job, you're going to suffer so everybody can see that I'm still God and that I will bless you when it's all done. What's the point? 
Now, huh? That was the well, that was the point. Yeah, the whole point. Stop, because he didn't have a problem with Job. No, he had no problem. It was a, it was a testimony to Satan. You, you can't take my, my grace away from him. It was the testimony to Job's disciples who were, you know, were called his friends, but they were really his disciples. They were younger than him. He had taught them. And you know, the funny thing is, when they gave him the words they gave him, they gave him everything that he had taught them without the love. The letter of the law can be the right thing to say, but without being administered in love, it destroys. And we need to keep this in mind. You can say all the right things without love and destroy somebody. And you can also say all the wrong things with love and make, and make things better because love is the overarching. The best, art, the best group is to say the right things in love. And when you say it in love, it's gentle. And I've shared with you how many times I, I think back, how many times do I correct somebody and I, and I realize they don't even realize they've been corrected sometimes because it's lovingly done and gentle. And I've had people come back and go, you just corrected me, didn't you? And I go, yes. <laughs> you know, it's got to be in that loving, gentle, you know, you know, it's not, yo, you're wrong, you know, and pound them over the head with all the right, wor- you know, right words, but be pounding them is not the way God says, I'm going to establish you as my people. I'm going to make you, and he says, and he says you ha- unto them, as I have sworn to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So why is he going to build? Why is he going to establish them? Not for anything they have done, but for the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why do many good Christian families have everything in their life working out in the future? Because God says, I've made a promise to your parents. Your parents honored me and and lived up. Your grandparents, your great-grandparents, however far back your, your generation goes, they honored me enough, and I said, I'm going to bless them down a few generations. Does that mean every kid in that line is going to be perfect? No. <laughs> These kids were not perfect in any way, shape, or form. They're, they're four generations away from, from Jacob, and they are trouble. <laughs> so we see that over and over. It says, neither with you only will I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that stands here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us. I love this statement. I'm not sure if you've caught this. I am not making it just with you people standing in front of me, Moses is saying. God is saying, I'm not making it just with you. I'm making it with your children to come and your great-grandchildren to come in the future. Now, not just you, but I'm making it down your whole generations. Um, in John 17, when Jesus gives the true Lord's Prayer, not the one that everybody quotes as the Lord's Prayer, but when he prays to the Father and he says, I don't pray just for for these, but those that will come and hear by their word. Do you realize that Jesus, while he was on this world, prayed for us, us as his children today? He prayed for us 2,000 years ago. So he knew? Well, he knew everything because he was, he was God. But he, but he was just praying for all people to follow him. But yes, in, in Jesus' mind, he also knew us because, he was, because he's God. So, and remember, we keep saying this. There's nothing that surprises God. He knows the beginning from the end at the same moment. Okay? His omnipresence is that big. Okay, he's not just everywhere present, he's every time present because he's out, he lives outside of time. So when God looks down at this world, and we've said this many times, he is with Adam and Eve right this moment, he's with us in this moment here, he's with the disciples back 2,000 years ago, and he's at the end of the millennial kingdom when the whole world is going to be destroyed and started all over again, all at the same time. There is nothing you do that surprises him because when he looks at it, it's already done. Anything you're going to do by his sight is already done. And that's mind-boggling when you think about it. All right, so he says, I'm going to be there with everybody. Verse 16 says, for you, know, for you know how we have dwelt in the land of Egypt and how we came through the nations which you passed by. And you have seen their abomination and their idols, wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them. He says, you lived in Egypt. You saw the idol worship. You saw the abominations that go with idol worship. And we've talked a little bit about this. Most idol worship involves sexual orgies. 
Almost all of them did. Not all of them, but the majority of them ended up having that. Why? Because that was what people were worshiping. And all the abominations that go along with it. And we're not just talking, you know, heterosexual uh, relationships in these orgies. It was every, every filthy thing you can even imagine. And I'll leave it to people's imagination on what you know or don't know about that type of stuff. Everything that was forbidden in, in Exodus and, and Numbers was going on in these events. And he says, you've seen the abomination. They, because they were worshiping Satan, and Satan is going to go as far from God's pure standards as he possibly can. And in Ezekiel last night, we were teaching how the verse really tells us that you did not leave your idols behind you as you were instructed. The children of Israel were not worshiping God in Egypt in their, in their truthful, true sense. They were worshiping the idols of Egypt. Why? Because, number one, they hadn't had the laws. God has barely established himself. Just about 20 years, you know, 15, 20 years before Jacob came down, he had just finally got all the idols out of his house. And his family, not that he worshipped them, but his, in his household, they were worshipping idols. Leah and Rebecca and, and, the, and Bilhah and Zilpah were, were idol worshippers in the very house of Jacob. And he finally got to, got to be the head of the house and said, we've got to get rid of all these idols. And they buried them by the tree. You know, he didn't destroy them, he just buried them so they can come back. Here he's saying, you have seen their abominations, the filthiness, the disgust on it. An abomination is a strong word, and we've been talking a lot about this in these books that we've been coming into. An abomination is something that makes you sick. It turns your stomach uh, because it is so awful. And if we really see sin the way God sees sin, we, wouldn't, we would have a very hard time in this world because of the abominations that we would see. You know, we think about this. What does God list when he says, there's seven things I hate, lying lips and those who spread gossip are on the top of the list. You know, and what do we think about gossip and lying lips? We really don't think too much about it, do we? Well, we see it all day long. We participate in it. We don't see it as that evil that God sees it as. And then God lists, puts it on the top of all of his lists. And why? Because they're so destructive. Our words are destructive not just at the physical level of people, but at the soul level of somebody. All of us can remember back in something that was said by our parents or grandparents or a neighbor or, or the, the kids that we were playing with when we were little that can still draw great hurt to us because of the words that dug deep into our soul. This is why we've got to get beyond those. This is why we've got to quit dwelling on past events and look to the future and realize that Jesus' blood has covered it. The more we concentrate on what God has given us and who we are in him, the more we eliminate the past. And when we're in the past, we just dredge up bad memories and, and it drags us down always. But we need to be so careful to leave the past behind. Don't dwell on the past. Don't think about it. Because you can't change the past. Yeah. Even, if it was all even if it was all terrible and, all, and no redemptive value at all, which it isn't, even though we don't usually remember the good stuff that goes back there. We, we tend to remember how bad things were, or the other extreme, how good things were, and forget the bad. But we need to not dwell in the past because you can't change the past. You're not going to make corrections in the past. And usually the person you're mad about in the past doesn't even realize that they hurt you a lot of times. Or may not even remember you. <laughs> you know, it's, and, and you may have taken what they said wrong and out of context. And how many times have you had somebody get mad at you and, you, and they go, well, you said such and such. And you try to remember what you said. And you go, I, don't, I didn't say it that way. Or I didn't say those, those words. Or if I did, I really didn't mean to. You know, and they've been mad at you for some period of time because they have built this up in their mind that you did this on purpose. And our goal, if as much as possible, if we have done something to hurt somebody or we know that they're upset with us and we probably should go apologize, we need to go apologize to them and say, you know, I'm really sorry that I, that I said this or that you got hurt by, by this action. You know, I just want it to be corrected. Now, if they accept it, fine. If they don't, fine, because it's between them and God. At that point, you've done all that you can do. But you need to get it, the truth and confession out. Because if you're, if you're not, you're living a lie. And Satan uses that lie in that darkness to attack you. 
Satan likes having sins and lies hidden. But Satan loves it. If, you're, if you have something hidden in your life, he'll come all the time saying, well, you know, if they just knew who you really are inside, they, you know, they would just re reject you and, you know, and we buy into it and we hide it even more. But the sad thing is eventually things come out. Always. They will always come out eventually. And we need to live in the now. We need to live in the light. Mm -hmm. Satan likes darkness. He likes the past. And if he can't get you in the past, he'll try to get you into the future so that you're worrying about something that, is not, that, that hasn't happened. Uh, either way, he, he's happy either way because if you're not living in the now, you're missing life. You're missing what's going on with God at this moment. You will miss opportunities to share Christ with people. You will miss opportunities to minister to people because you're so worried about either the past, everything that's gone wrong, or the future, everything that might go wrong. And that's why we must live in this moment in the light of God. And uh, here he is, he's saying to the people, you've seen their abominations, you've seen their idols of wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among you. you know, the, 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 the physical things that are built up into idols. You know, in our day and age, we don't have so much silver, stone and, and wood and, and gold uh, idols, but we have idols nonetheless. Most people, you know, a lot of people, there's a cell phone. It's kind of amazing now with smartphones how cell phones are becoming an idol. Money, money can be an idol. Most people have a great big uh, idol sits in the middle of, a, middle of one of their rooms and all the, all the chairs face that idol and uh, they'll spend hours and hours every day yeah. worshiping that idol. Yeah. And I'm not saying every TV, every phone, all, all money is an idol, but if, you're, if that is what spends all your time and that's what you think about. I, I was talking to a guy yesterday at the prison who was busy trying to get the, the TV uh, station log for the, for the week so that he could plan his television watching for the week. And I was like, I didn't go into it with him and all that, but you know, his whole life was going to center around what was on television. And it's like, how sad. I mean, to sit down once in a while and watch a show is one thing, but you know, your whole life, I've got to be in front of this at this time to watch this show every week, you know, and, I'm, and then, then tomorrow I've got this show, and the next day I've got this. That's a sad way to live when, when God's got other plans for you. It all comes down to the what is, what is an idol in our life, and an idol is anything that is more important to us than God. What will keep us out of his word? What will keep us up from going to church? What will keep us from ministering to him when he says to minister to? Whatever those are, they're an idol. And it can be money, it can be work, it can be TV, it can be your cell phone, it can be your computer, it can be entertainment, it can be sports, whether you're participating in sports or watching sports. It's, you know, they can be, you know, amazed how many people can tell you every stat about their favorite team of whatever, whatever sport it is they watch. Can't quote one scripture out of the Bible. But they can tell you everything you ever wanted to know and then some about their, their, their sport. And... And then they'll tell you, well, I just can't memorize things. <laughs> you'll, you'll talk to somebody who's very much into cooking and there's hundreds of recipes in there memorized, but they can't memorize the scripture. You know, why can't they memorize the scripture? Because it's not the God in their life. Verse 18, as you just talked about their abominations, lest there should be among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away this day from the Lord your God, to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that bears gall and wormwood. So he's saying, you're to see the abomination. Why do you see the abomination? So that you'll turn away from it. If you see something as abominable, you're not going to stand there and stare at it unless there's something wrong with you. And what ends up happening in our world, Satan is desensitizing us to the abominations that are going on with us. Okay? We see them so often that they don't look as bad to us as they used to look at. Started out with simple things like gluttony. Well, I got to eat, you know, and the next thing you know, you're, you know, we were watching people eating all the time and weighing four or 500 pounds because they had to eat. And TV is one of the worst things because it puts the abominations in front of our eyes constantly. Here, watch 100 murders a, a, a week on TV. Here, watch... Watch uh, 5,000 affairs with no, and, and uh, fornications without any consequence. Here, watch, you know, watch these. Uh, and, then, you know, and we see them over and over and over again. Here, so watch all these homosexual couples until you don't have a problem with it anymore. 
okay? And he desensitizes us to it and then builds the world view on all this stuff. And if we're not careful to keep in a biblical world view, we fall for it. We've got to keep a biblical world view so that we see these things as abominations so that they make us sick so that we turn to God. And he says, this is the whole purpose. I want you to pay attention to the abominations. See them as abominations so that you will not be tempted to turn to them away from me, God said. And that is God's desire, that we will see things as filthy and dirty as they are. Now that has a flip side of it when we're trying to witness to people and we don't want to sit there and judge their, their lifestyle. But this goes down to a very key point that I try to bring out to us often. When I'm talking to the lost world, I cannot expect them to be Christian. Okay? I cannot expect the lost world to be Christian because it's hard enough for the Christian to be, be act like a Christian. And I've said this before, I am not surprised when a lost person sins. Okay? It is their natural tendency to sin. I am not surprised when a Christian sins. I'm a little more saddened when a Christian sins because they should be living in victory. But I am not surprised when a Christian sins because the sin nature, if it's not crucified, will bring us into sin. And that is our desire to sin. You know, doesn't mean I'm less shocked by the sin, but I'm not surprised when they sin. I'm not going to say, tell the lost person, well, you need to behave and act like a Christian so that I can tell you all about Jesus. I'm going to tell you right now, for a lost person, I want them being a good sinner, a good, hard sinner. Because if they're self-righteous thinking they're good, they're very hard to reach. It is much easier to reach the person who is living in sin completely, wholeheartedly, knowing that it's empty and vain than somebody who thinks that they're doing good by obeying God. And what do you do with the person that is, I love this person very much. You give them the gospel. But I'm totally 100% convinced that everything they do is right. You give them the gospel, you give them the gospel over and over again, you give them God's word. God's word does not return void. When you're witnessing to somebody and they'll tell you, well, I don't believe God's word. Oh, that's wonderful, but let me just tell you what God says. Well, I don't believe that Bible. That's man-made. Well, that's, I understand what you're saying, but I'm going to tell you what God says. And I give them the Bible verses. Why? God's word does not return void. It's his word. Whether they believe it or not, it's God's word. And it's going to make people irritated when you keep coming back to the word of God. When I was in the college talking to people and I bring up the word of God and they would go, I don't believe that, that's man-made. I'm going, well, I understand what you're saying, but I'm going to tell you what God says. And I would quote the Bible to them. I told you I don't believe that. Blah, 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 you know, and I'm going, sorry, this is what God says. Let me tell you more about what God says. It gets stuck in there. And eventually, you would be surprised how many people actually get saved, not when you're talking to them, but that night when they're alone. And the Holy Spirit comes down upon them and says, what if they're right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, no, they're not right. You know, but the, the little nudging, what if they're right? It's a very good thing when they end up confused. When they get shaken up in what they believe, then God can come in with his word that you've planted in their heart and bring them to him. Now, if we planted in their heart all this condemnation about all the sin and everything they've done, it will work against what, what, what God's trying to do. Now, it's very important. Now, I want to be very careful because the only way you can win somebody to Christ in the first place is to convince them that they're a sinner. But you can convince them they're a sinner without condemning them. It can be as simple as, what guy, will you go to heaven? Oh, yeah, I think I'll go to heaven. Well, because I'm a pretty good person. Well, let's see if you're a good person and you go through the Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied? Well, yeah, of course I've lied. If anybody tells you they haven't lied, they're lying. And you go, well, what do you call it? What's somebody who lies? You know, a liar. You know, have you ever stolen anything in your life? Well, usually, when, you know, usually the response is, well, yeah, when I was little, I, I stole some things. Well, does that make you a thief? And then you go down to, you know, Jesus says, if you've looked on, on somebody with lust, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. Have you ever done that? Oh, yeah, sure, plenty of times. <laughs> you know, so but, but that makes you an adulterer. You know, Jesus said, if you've been angry with a brother without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. Have you ever been angry at somebody without, without cause? Oh, yeah. Well, by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, murdering adulterer. 
you're not judging them. You've got them to agree that they're all these things. Okay? If God judges you by those standards, how will you stand before him? You know, at that point, they've got to admit that uh, if I'm judged by those standards, and those are only four of the Ten Commandments, you know, that's not even getting into covetousness and, and all the other stuff that, and, that you can get into. And then you have that opportunity. They've already understood now that they're not a good person. Okay? And then you can be able to bring the gospel in. Well, here's the good news. Once they show a repentance to the idea that they deserve punishment, then we bring in, well, here's the good news. Jesus died for you. He died for your sins so that you could go to heaven. And it's a free gift. All you have to do is take it. Repent, turn away from your sins, and turn to him. The gospel's easy to present. It's really a very easy thing to do. You're not going, well, you're, you, know, you, you lie all the time and you steal. You know, if you go that kind of process with them, you're going to repulse them from God's love. But we don't want to immediately go to his love until they know that they need his love. Okay? And it's very important. You know, if I tell you, uh, I went out and paid your debt, and you're going, what debt did you pay? You know, it doesn't do you a bit of good. You're going to think, you know, you're not going to have much, you know, uh, understanding that you just had a gift. But if you said, you know, you just, you just drove through this, this intersection and almost hit three people in the intersection and they, they, they gave you a million dollar uh, fine because it got you on camera and I paid your debt. Now all of a sudden this, this, that's very good news. Yeah. You, you know, I was going to have to pay a million dollars. You know, we got to keep this in mind on what it means to have a message that people want to have and we need to be able to present it jesus was so gentle with the lost sinners and he presented you know zacchaeus oh, zacchaeus hey i'm going to your house today you know zacchaeus wasn't even a follower of him at the time but yet whatever he said zacchaeus turned to him and said i'm going to pay back everything 10 times what i've stolen from people okay the, the rich young ruler comes to him and says, good master, what must I do to be saved? And he says, who's good? And he goes, well, you know the rules, keep, you know, keep, keep the laws. And he names off four or five laws. And he goes, well, I've kept all those since I was a child. He says, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and follow me. He went away sad. Why did he go away sad? Money was his God. He wasn't about to put God first above his money. So... Well, this, the year rich young ruler was literally his money. He was happy. You know. But we see both gentle, both gentle. One responded, one didn't. And this is the thing. People are not going to respond to the gospel message every time it's presented. They didn't in Jesus' day. Why would we think we're going to be any different? Okay? Many people are going to reject the gospel message we give them. And it's not our problem. It's not, it's not something we need to be concerned about. We need to look at it and say, did, okay, did I really mess it up that bad that they didn't respond? But even in that, if you have started to speak this message, God will honor that because it's the Holy Spirit that changes people's hearts anyway. I don't even remember what was spoken the day that I got saved. I just remember it hit my heart that I needed Jesus. And I went forward in children's church and got saved. But, and I don't remember at all what was said. I just, all of a sudden, it dawned on me that I was a sinner that, that needed punishment and God was my way out. And you may not remember the time that what was said on the day you got saved. But the importance is to reach out and, and understand that it is something that's true. That it is going to change your life because of how much God loves you. And how it says that he's going to, you need to see the abomination so you don't turn from God and it says, lest there should be among you a root that bears gall and wormwood. Gall, the bile and, and, and filth. Wormwood is, is always talking about the poisoned water that's out there. Bitterness. How many people do you know that you almost see them coming and go, oh man, I'm not ready for this person because they're so bitter and so filled with so much vitriol that you just don't want to be around them and you feel miserable <coughs> when you're around them. Hopefully you're not one of those people. <laughs> but there are people out there that are that way. You just feel, man, I just feel so dirty and, and unclean when I've been around this person because they're just spewing out everything that they possibly can about how bad things are, how bad 
this person is, how bad that person is, how bad all of life is. And you're going, and you sometimes you just want to go, does anything good ever happen? Do you have anything good to anchor your thoughts on? You know, anchor it on it. <laughs> Verse 19, and it came to pass when he heard the words of this curse, that he hears the words of this curse and bless himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace though I walk in the imagination of my heart to add drunkenness to thirst. It sounds a little bit like our world today, doesn't it? I don't care what, how bad things are getting. I'm, I'm better than most, so I'm going to be okay. God does not grade on a curve. He does not say, okay, 50% of you are going to go to heaven and 50% of you are going to go to hell. That's not how he does it. Or he doesn't even go 60% of you are going to go to heaven and 40% are going to go to hell, wherever that curve might be. He says the wages of sin is death. If we have committed any sin in our entire life outside of the blood of Christ, we deserve hell. Because of his blood and his forgiveness and his righteousness, we're given the gift of grace. And it is so wonderful, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. Now, not by works, but by grace. You know, all these different statements out there are so true. I have done nothing to deserve what God has given me. Nothing. And you have done nothing that's so bad that God won't forgive you. you know, one of the things I hate to hear people, well, you just knew how bad I was or how bad I am, you would know that God was wants nothing to do with me. Well, I don't know. Have you been a murderer that stole, stole one of his friend's wives and, and, and arranged to have him killed? No, maybe there's some people out there that have done that. Think of all the different things that people have done in the Bible. And God has still used them. God, Samson, yeah, judge of Israel, who every time he turned around was, was going after uh, foreign women and, and going into committing uh, fornication and, and breaking the vows before God. And God still used him to deliver the people. Gave him strength. Gave him strength of, that was a beyond anything the man normally has. And, you know, I heard a pastor say, and I, when I heard it, it made a lot of sense to me. Nobody could believe how strong Samson was. I don't believe that Samson was a great, big, muscular man. I believe that he was a pretty scrawny fellow. And it's like, how could this scrawny fellow carry the gates of the city all the way to the top of the hill five miles away? How could this little scrawny you know, guy beat these mighty warriors? Because they were always amazed at how strong he was. And if he was, if he was this big Atlas-type guy, you know, it wouldn't have surprised you at all. Okay, yeah, look at all those muscles. Of course he's strong. But they were always surprised at how strong he was. I don't believe, and I can't prove it, but I just, because of that surprise factor, I don't believe he was this big, muscular, he-man, Hercules, Atlas-looking uh, man. He was probably a pretty normal-looking guy. That, you know, that God just came upon him and he did things that were just amazing to the people. The Lord will not spare him, and when the anger of the Lord and, and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall be upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under the heavens. God says that when he, if you're going to live in this style, and this man I don't believe is a follower of God, the one that can say, I'll just, you know, I'm doing really good. You know, I, I, I will... I will have peace, though I walk in the imaginations of my heart. We hear that all the time in this day and age. There's no absolute truth. There's no right or wrong. Uh, you know, my God would never punish sin. Well, then you better get the right God because you have created an idol in your heart that's not the God of the Bible. And we've got to understand this. When people go, my God wouldn't do it. Oh, your God doesn't exist. Your God's a, an, an idol. You know, my God is a God of righteous judgment who is going to judge because he is perfect and righteous and holy. And he put all of his judgment on Jesus Christ so that we could be able to be in front of him in righteousness and in forgiveness and, and mercy. Because Jesus took the punishment that is due us if we didn't accept, if we hadn't accepted him. And all the curses will come upon those people, all of them. And you know, the funny thing is that people really don't truly believe the stuff they say. They throw up these smoke screens all the time. There is no right or wrong. It's, you know, there's no absolute right or wrong. There, you know, nobody, if I think it's right, it's right. And if you think it's right, it's, that's your opinion. You know, they know darn well what's right and wrong. 
hit them upside the head once or twice and they're going to very quickly decide that you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Whether you believed you were wrong or not, they're very quickly going to decide that you were wrong for hitting them. Steal their stuff and they're going to very quickly be telling you about how stealing is wrong. Okay, with no this ambiguity, ambigu ambiguousness that, you know, for some people it's okay and some people it's not. Uh, they're going to go, you stole from me, that's my stuff. It is wrong and they're going to be just as much. Why? Because God's put a conscience in our heart and we understand right and wrong internally. We may be able to sear our consciousness with enough evil, but we'll never sear it completely. We will always know that there's right and wrong in spite of it, we may sear certain areas of it. We may lie so much that we've seared our consciousness toward lying, but there's going to be other areas in our life that we're going to still know they're right and wrong. This is why when we witness to people, I don't have to convince them something that they don't believe is a sin is a sin. Because there's plenty of things in their life that they know is a sin. I, and this is one thing when I'm talking to homosexuals, I'm not going to deal with their homosexuality being a sin when I'm trying to convert, you know, give them the gospel message because it's, it's going to fall on deaf ears and they're just going to defend themselves. But I want to get them, you've lied, you've stolen, you've cheated, you, you've done a bunch of other things that are, that are sin, that you, you deserve the punishment that God says you're going to get in areas that they understand are wrong. Now once they get saved, God can now work on them in the other areas and work from the inside and teach them that those other areas are sin. Our job is not to convince people that their, that their lifestyle is all sin. Our job is to convince them that they have sinned. Not that every part of their lifestyle that sin is sin. Because we can't do it. The Holy Spirit must do it. And, we, and you're fighting a losing battle if you're trying to do that kind of stuff. If you're trying to convince the thief that his stealing is a sin, and they're looking, well, if I didn't steal, I'm not going to have food on the table and, and a car, you're not going to convince them that stealing from somebody is a sin because they'll take the Robin Hood approach. Well, they're, they're richer than I am. They're, they've got insurance. They're not going to miss it. I need this to survive. But they do know that lying and, and hurting people and all these other things are a sin. Go... Go deal with the things they know is a sin. You, you go into what they know is sin and deal with their conscience and let their conscience start pulling on them. Once they get saved, then everything else falls into place because now God starts working from the inside and says, uh, hey, by the way, uh, I say thou shalt not steal. Now, you've been stealing. You may be justifying it, but you've been stealing. God will say, you know, you're supposed to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and you lie a lot. And it does it from the inside. You know, he can come in and say, you've got a lot of gods in that you're trying to put in front of me. You're not worshiping with me with your heart, soul, strength, and, and mind. You know, let's, get, let's, get this all back, let's get this all into focus. And he works from the inside of the person to change who they are. But our job as Christians is just to teach them that you are a sinner. You know, and not try to change them. You know, too many Christians try to change the person, make them a good person so that they'll be good enough to get saved, I think is what they're thinking. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what they're trying to think when they do that. You know, when you, get, you, know, you quit doing all this sin, then I'll tell you about the good news of God. Our job is just to give them, get them lost in the first place and then get them saved. Well, they try to make things difficult for you. They try to, and I've done a lot of work on the colleges and stuff, and they, they were really good about putting up all kinds of you know, smoke screens of logic and intelligence and everything, and and usually when you work your way through it, it's none of it. None of it is worth anything. As Christians, we need to learn to be able to challenge the smoke screen a bit. And you know, when somebody says, "Well, this book is just man-made," or, or "I love the one," and I've shared this with you, the Bible is full of contradictions. You know, most Christians stop talking to somebody as soon as somebody says the Bible is full of contradictions. And I have shared with you, the thing you ask them is name one. And the intelligent people, well, there's lots of them. I go, don't, don't tell me there's lots of them. Give me one. Well, so-and-so said there's, no, don't tell me so-and-so said there's lots of them. What have you personally seen in the Bible that's a contradiction? I'll tell you what, I'll even give you a week. You go find the contradictions and come back and talk to me. And we'll talk next week about your contradictions or tomorrow about your contradictions. They're not going to find them. And a handful of things they find that they're going to think are contradictions are very easily answered. There's about five of them that they would come back with. And they're easily answered. If you, but we need to be bold. Most Christians are cowards, to be blunt. 
they're cowards. Somebody says something and they just back off and say, well, <laughs> I'm shut down. I, I, I may not have the right answer. And what have I shared with you over and over? The best thing that can happen to you is for them to ask you a question that you don't know the answer to because then you go, that's a wonderful question. I've got to go find the answer. Can we talk again tomorrow, the next week, whatever it might be? I, I, I'm going to go find the answer to that because I, know there's, I don't know the answer, but I know there's an answer and I'm going to be willing to share it with you. Yeah. In this last part of this, he says he's going to talk that God will judge him in anger and his jealousy. His jealousy, we've talked about, God will not allow anything to be a rival for our affection to him. Nothing. That is what true jealousy is. Good jealousy is that I'm not going to allow any rival. Bad jealousy is when I see rivals that aren't there. Okay, and there's a lot of people that have bad jealousy. You know, the, the man who won't let his wife go out in the town with the girls because he's afraid that some guy might try to hit on her. You have that little faith in your wife in the first place. <laughs> If you've got, if, yes, if you've got, if you're, but you look at somebody that's in the workforce, you know, that's making a play for her every day at the workplace, then it's going to be a day to come up and say, hey, <laughs> this isn't going on. Yeah. And that's, that is a good jealousy at that point. You're, you're defending something that is actually going on. That's what God says. I am not going to allow any rival for my affections. And he says, if you're going to follow God in this way, God, I'm good in spite of this. He says, every curse of this book will fall upon you. That's a lot of curses. And it says, your name will be blotted out from under the heaven. That's pretty severe. That is severe, which means that your descendants will also pay for, for it. And this is the sad thing about it. There is this aspect of when a leader of a family especially sins, the family suffers. You know, not even next generation. Usually generational stuff is taught more than anything else. But if I do wrong and I get punished as the, as the father of the house, other people in my family are going to suffer because I'm being punished. You know, the wife, the kids are going to suffer not because they're being punished, but because I'm being punished. And God's saying, I'm trying to get your attention. If a pastor in a church goes off in the wrong direction and starts leading his church in the wrong direction, the church is going to suffer because of him doing the wrong things. Which is why we need to pray for our leaders. We pray for our government. We pray for the pastors. We pray for our, our fathers because there's consequences for their actions. And our presidents, we need to pray for our presidents. You know, they are not going to get away scot-free when they stand before God. The nation stand before God in judgment as well. What did you do to this nation? And they will take some bitter pills, whether they're Christian or not. There's going to be some hard times for them when they go, why did you make this decision? And they're going to go, well, uh, I stuck my finger in the air and the wind was blowing in that direction and I followed it. And God's going to say, and God's going to say, uh-uh, that's not the way you make decisions if you're a leader. And so this is very important. Too many leaders do too much following of their people. And democracies are good on that because, you know, you're afraid to be a statesman. You're afraid to take a strong stance. And we haven't had good statesmen in a long time in our country. Somebody who will say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to follow what's right no matter what. No matter what, I'm going to do what I think is right. You may like it. You may not like it. You may be angry at me or not, but I'm going to do what I see as right. And this is important. A leader does what they see as right before God. Now, that doesn't mean they're always going to do right, but they have a reason for doing it and they follow it. And the sad thing in many churches is churches have these situations where instead of having pastors lead the church, which is biblical, they have the church tell the pastor what they're doing. Yeah. We're going to vote, pastor, and we're, you're going to do what we tell you to do. We want to be very careful. Leaders lead, and they need to lead. Does that mean they're always going to be right? No. But you know what? Sub true submission to a leader is to stay under that leader's authority. And as long as they're not doing sinful stuff, if you stay under the submission of the authority, you are covered and protected under God, even if the authority is going the wrong way. Now, they're going off and they're trying to lead you into the wrong, you know, the sins. No, you don't stay under that authority and you, and you, just, you, know, you choose to obey God rather than man. But as long as the authority is not leading you into sin, if you stay under the authority, you're covered. A wife being submitted to her husband, even if he's a bonehead making bad decisions, 
is protected by that submission. Because God's saying, you are glorifying me by being honored. Okay, again, not, not saying he's being, you know, he's just being a bonehead. He's making bad decision after bad decision. And God's going to say, you were submitted. You're, I'm covering you. And we're going to read verse 21, I, and I think I may stop there. And the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book. When God takes that person who is choosing to live outside of what he says, and remember, here's his, here's his saying, I have peace, I, though I walk in the imagination of my heart to add drunkenness to thirst. If somebody wants to live that evil, God's going to say, I'm going to separate him unto his evil. God's going to say, just send him aside. Paul said that in, in the church in Corinthians when he said, you've got a man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law, kick him out of the church until he repents. Let Satan have him until he is ready to repent. Because that was an awful sin. I mean, everybody knows you don't sleep with your mother-in-law or your, or your sister or you know, close relative. I mean, it's just a natural inclination of our heart. And yet he is in the Christian church saying, well, I'm just going to sleep with her. And the church was praising it, saying, oh, look how free this guy is in his liberty. And Paul said, get him out of there. Before he completely infects the church, get him out of there until he repents. And then bring him back in once he repents. There is a place where somebody is going to live so sinful in front of the church and say, well, God's not going to judge me. I can live this way. That there's a point where the have to be sent out of the church. Now, that's a pretty hard decision, and it's a pretty hard place. And I've already said, I want everybody in our church, I don't care what sin they're doing, as long as they're not trying to actively promote it in, their, in this church and say, you've got to accept my lifestyle, I have no problem with it. The moment they're saying, well, you've got to twist the Bible to accept my lifestyle, uh uh-uh, not doing that. Well, we're gonna, I'm going to try to get other people to commit this you know, sin with me. Then it's going too far. But just to be in this church in a, in a sinful lifestyle, I want them here so they can hear the gospel. You know, I can't tell you, especially in our day and age where there's so many unmarried couples living together as if they are married, and there are lots of them, but they come in and they live that way. Again, it's between them and God. If they're not trying to say, you've got to be my lifestyle, leave it alone. Pray for them. And in big churches, there are lots of people living in that lifestyle that are living unmarried, in fornication, and not having a problem with it. And in, in our day, many older people are doing it because if they really get, if they tie the knot officially, they will lose out, lose insur- uh, Social Security money. So they're going, their God is money and not God, so they won't tie the knot because they're so worried about losing their, their God of money that the government's providing to them and not trusting in God to support them for doing it the right way can't barely afford to live, but if I get married, I'm going to lose 300, so I'm not going to get married because I want my government check. My hope and my, my, my trust is in the, in the government, not God. Basically tell God if, the same thing we all tell God when we go into sin. God, if you just knew my circumstances and my, my, what, what I'm going through, you would know that your word just does not apply to me. And this is why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a verse that you probably should all memorize it if you don't know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. You know, when we think that God's word doesn't apply to us, go back to God's word is true and I'm, and, and, and I'm lying to myself if I don't believe it. You know, this is so important for us. God's word is always true. No matter what I think, no matter what I feel, no matter what... How much logic I apply to my life saying it's not true. God's word is true. The more I humble myself and quicker humble myself to say that God's word is true, the better off I'm going to be. Because otherwise you're going to sit there and fight and argue with God. God, I just don't understand why. You know what? God has never told us he's going to explain why. He is God of the universe. He is king. Kings don't explain themselves. Bosses don't usually explain themselves. They say do and you're to do. If you don't want to do it, they say go find another job. Okay, now if, they're, if it's good, they might tell you why. But if, but if they just tell you to do something, they want to, you to do. God is, a, is the king of the universe. When he says to do something, 
He is not going to sit there and say, well, you've got to do this because five years from now, this is what you're going to find. And, in, and 10 years beyond that, you're going to find that this was why you needed to do this. And 20 years from now, you, and when you get into eternity, this is the reward you're going to have behind it. He just says, do it. <laughs> we spend too much time of our life trying to figure out, God, why should I do it your way? Can you imagine if you were Hosea? Hosea, I want you to go marry that prostitute because it's going to be a picture of my, of my life to you. And she was definitely a picture of Israel's hassle to, to, at least in his case, he was told why to a degree, but he didn't even fully understand all that he was going to be put through in the process. Abraham, I want you to go up on the mountain and offer Isaac, your only son Isaac, who's the son of promise. And he actually went up and to do it. You know, he didn't sit there and ask God why, you know, hey, God, uh, this is the son, this is, you said he's the son of promise. I mean, all the, all my descendants are going to come through him and you want me to go kill him? You know, most of us would have done just that. God, uh, uh, I, I must not be hearing God, you know, this doesn't make any sense, you know. We need to be so careful about how we deal with God because sometimes we get into the very first question in most of our minds is, why did this happen? Why should I do this? Why should I obey God? You know, don't worry about the whys. God is in control. And these are, these are the, this is the way I have my peace that I have. Number one, God is sovereign. He's in control. Nothing's going to happen to me that he does not know beforehand is going to happen to me. He's a good God, and he has nothing but good in mind for me. And the biggest promise is all things work together for good for those who call according to the purpose of God. If you can hold those two things in your mind, when it seems like everything's going wrong, you're going to have a lot of peace. It's going to work out for good, and God is in control. And as long as you fully believe those, you're going to be at peace. You're not going to necessarily be happy with everything that happens to you, but you're going to go, God, I don't understand it, but you're in control. And it's very important for us to be able to grab hold of this, that God is in control always. He is never out of control and everything that happens to us is for good and the more we believe those statements the better off we're going to be because it'll make it real easy when you're going through hard times. Because you can you know my prayer sometimes has been God I really don't understand any of this but you know you're in control and you made and you promised it's for good I don't understand it but I'm going to just rest that you are who you say you are and that this is not out of your control because usually what do we do when we're asking when we're demanding God why God you're somehow you've lost it did you turn your back God and all this stuff snuck by while you weren't looking that's really what we're saying when we get after God and, and, and tell him that this is not right and you got to explain it God and I, I've heard people go when I get to heaven I'm gonna make God tell me why all this stuff happened number one if you get if you get to heaven you're not going to care <laughs> what happened to you because you're going to start seeing it at that point from the spiritual side of things and and how much god blessed and honored you i got a question for you how old was moses when time when he was uh, not going to the promised land 120. 120. moses's life is broken up in 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 three 40 year periods he spent 40 years as a as a son of pharaoh being taught how to run a nation which is why when he told God he's not able to do it, it was a, a lie in the first place. Because uh, he, was, he, was, he was trained by the, by the number one empire in the world to run a nation. Then 40 years in the wilderness being humbled and learning about God. And then 40 years leading, leading the nation of Israel. He just didn't want to. And how many times do we do that to God? We don't want to do what he's asking us to do. So we'll come up with a million and one excuses. God says, I want you to go talk to that person. Oh, God, I'm afraid they might ask me something I don't know. God says, I don't care. Go talk to them. I'll fill your mouth. Now, one of the things you're going to find, and one last thing I'm going to bring up, as we go out and we learn how to evangelize people and you start getting over your fear and actually evangelizing to people, you're going to find out all the stuff you're worried about before you started doing it, it was just a big bunch of baloney. Uh, street evangelism, knocking on doors, uh, talking to your friends. It's really not that hard once you learn to do it. Uh, and I love it, I love it with Annie because she, I love it when she tells me that she's witnessing to the, to the telemarketers. Tele, uh, you know, they're trying to sell her, so she, start, she starts witnessing to them. 
Now when we really give her some tools to witness to them, look out, they're gonna, they're really gonna have a hard time now that she's gonna know how, you know, tell me about, do you believe, you know, do you believe in God or how, you know, what do you think happens to you when you die? And then go into that whole conversation with them and it's recorded so somebody else will get to listen to it as well. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to learn your word and, and know that you love us and that you care for us. We ask that you guide us and go about with us in all that we do. Give us opportunities to share you with others. Give us op opportunities to open our mouth and give us the courage to open our mouths. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.